week of our series here uh, on uh, Revival, Stronger Than Ever. And I know we took a week off. Matt Skolnick led us in a conversation around the journey that Abraham took. And I think it fits perfectly into just really understanding this current season that we're in. I have to say that while I was in California and we spent time with some amazing uh, new friends and old friends just talking about ministry, this season we've all been in, these many months, has been hard on all of us. And so it was a time of refreshment, also a time of just confession of that we're just really in a new day in trying to understand what God is calling us to be a part of. As we lean into this fifth week, we're still in the book of Chronicles, and we're pushing into some interesting stories that Ezra, the writer, is making us aware of. Let me begin by first saying I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you today. The bad news is that the world is full of bad news these days. It doesn't take me to tell you that, right? Uh, Just uh, turn on the TV and you'll get it in the first 90 seconds. But the good news is that our world has always been full of bad news. And bad news never prevails. And that's what I want us to see in our uh, time together this morning. Many of us know that one of the worst moments in our nation's history was December 7, 1941. The Japanese Navy attacked the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. More than 2,400 Americans were killed. They disabled uh, almost all of our battleships. But that was the bad news. The good news, on the other hand, was that Three of our aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers at the time, and so they weren't in dock. And so our carrier fleet was very much intact. And six months later, that carrier group destroyed four Japanese carriers in the Battle of Midway. Remember that? And then ultimately, we won the war. But you see, history's like that. Uh, We wait long enough, and good news will always uh, triumph over the bad. I mean, think about it in our own Christian history. On Good Friday, our Savior Jesus died. It was the worst news in history. And yet three days later, he rose again, and it was the best news in history. And on top of that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And then he launched the church, that which we are today here even, here online and in person. So I want to begin first with this idea that bad news is always followed by good news because of the forces of good in this world are stronger than the forces of evil. And we need to remember that. As we walk through the fourth week of our series, Revival Stronger Than Ever, we know that Ezra and his people here in First and Second Chronicles are climbing out of a national crisis. And to be honest, they needed good news. They needed some hope and they needed some inspiration. They needed some reminders that their great God also worked all things together for the good of those who love him. So Ezra has pulled together some stories that we've seen. They're real-life stories, and they're real-life lessons we can learn from them. One of those stories was a really bad news to good news story that involved mayhem and murder, and it was over three generations. So we see when we think of where we find ourselves each day in the moment, we need to sometimes pull back and get the larger view, the 30,000-foot view, or taking a look at it over a period of decades to see how God's going to show up. Now, for all of us, for months, 20 months now, we've been wrestling with the idea of hope, of just wanting hope in so many different ways. And I want us to see that Ezra's people wrestled with it for decades. And so how did they cope? That's why we have God's Word, to give us encouragement so we can see how God has worked, and then maybe there's some things we can learn as we move in our journey together as being followers of Jesus living in 2021. 
And so the question is, how did God rescue Ezra's people? Well, that's the story I want to tell you today. And so if you're ready to lean in, just pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, speak to me. Amen. And we're going to start here in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 10. Just to give you some context, it's a little bit earlier in the storyline that where we've been. It's during the, the reign of King David. And so one day, God says to David, I declare to you that the Lord himself will build a house for you. When your time comes to be with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who is one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who was before you. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. There are two promises we see here in this passage. First, there would always be a descendant of David ruling over the nation of Israel. And two, those descendants would rule God's kingdom forever. Or maybe to say it in a different way, that the Messiah that they were looking forward to, the forever ruler, would be a descendant of David. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there were all sorts of prophecies about this one-day Messiah coming. From this day in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 forward, everybody knew that when the Messiah came, he would be a descendant of David. The Israelites knew and Satan knew. And Satan, we need to say, is not all-knowing, but he's exceedingly crafty and creative. And when this prophecy pops up, he is clued in on how the Messiah is going to show up, and he realizes it's in the lineage of David. So Satan knows that God has to be true to his word. He knows that if he can extinguish the line of David, he can prevent the Messiah from coming and saving mankind from his sins. So again, some context here. In 841 BC, Satan sees and then he seizes a strategic opportunity to eliminate the line of David. So here's how it happened in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. God promises that David will never lack an heir on the throne of Israel. God promises that the heir of David will rule God's kingdom forever. Now we fast forward 150 years to the time of King Jehoshaphat, and we talked about him a couple weeks ago. It was during his reign the Jehoshaphat made what seemed to be an expedient decision to secure the alliance with his greatest threat, which was the kingdom of northern Israel. Back in those days, a common way to seal alliances was for the two kings to marry their children to each other. And in this case, Jehoshaphat married his son Joram to the king of Israel's daughter, who was named Ataliah. And now you need to follow me on this for the next couple of minutes. Is I'm going to try to push into a, what I think is an important lesson that could save you and your family a lot of heartache over the next couple decades. If you look at the map here, the nation of Israel sits on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And as we are reminded in this time of history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is simply called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And at this time, the northern kingdom was ruled by a king named Ahab, and the southern kingdom was ruled by a king named Jehoshaphat. Now Ahab, in order to secure his northern border, had married the daughter of the king to his north. That kingdom was called Sidon. Its king was named Ethbaal. The word Eth means with, and anybody want to guess what the word Baal means? Yeah, you've heard it before, right? The word Baal means Baal. Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanites. And so Ethbaal was with Baal, and he was a worshiper of Baal. 
And we know how that ended for some, right? So Ethbel's daughter was named Jezebel. Remember that name? I think you've probably heard that before. She's infamous for worshiping Baal and also for pretty much corrupting all of northern Israel during the time that she was its queen. Now Ahab married Jezebel, and together they had a daughter whose name was Athaliah. Meanwhile, Jehoshaphat and his wife had a son named Jeroham. Now, to make their alliance work, Ahab and Jehoshaphat married their children to each other. This meant that the wife of the crown prince of Judah was not a follower of Jehovah, but was a Baal worshiper. Now, everything went along just fine until the day that Jehoshaphat died. And on that day, Jehoram became king and Athaliah became queen. You'd like to be able to say, and they lived happily ever after, but we know that the world's full of bad news and that happily ever afters only follow not so happy disasters. And we're gonna see one here. Jehoram's first act as king was to do what no Israelite king had ever done. But what most pagan kings from places like Sidon usually did, and that was he killed all his brothers so that none of them could threaten his right to the throne. Good work, right? So if you're paying attention, the third point for us this morning is to form an alliance, Ahab, the king of Israel, married Jezebel, the princess of Sidon. Now this happens about 40 years before our story begins. And it was during the next generation, what? To form an alliance, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, married his son Jehoram to Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Now, as we read here in 2 Chronicles 18, verse 1 says, Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and he made an alliance with Ahab through marriage. In fact, here's the introduction to our story. I want to spend some time in this morning. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Jehoshaphat rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. His son Jehoram became king in his place. He had brothers, sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Sheptiah. All these were the sons of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Now, when Jehoram had established himself over his father's kingdom, he strengthened his position by killing with the sword all his brothers as well as some of the princes of Israel. Okay, so here's the next point. When Jehoram becomes king, he kills all his brothers. He eliminated the competition. Now, suddenly, all the descendants of David are gone except for one and that's Jehoram along with the sons that he will give birth to over time. Well later on in that same year 841 BC Jehoram dies in battle. Ezra's comment in verse 20 was he died to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David but not in the tombs of the kings. Why? Well because his, his life didn't merit a kingly tomb. You see often when a king dies that's when his kingdom is vulnerable. And because the neighboring nations know that the new king will be young and inexperienced, that's when they attack. And so it goes on to say, the attack happens. Judah is invaded by her neighbors. They carried off all the possessions found in the king's palace and also his sons and wives. Not a son was left to him except Azahiah, his youngest son. Now, here's the next point. The Philistines kill all but one of Jehoram's sons, Azahiah. And then there was only one. And now here's where the story officially begins, what I want to get into. The kingdom and the messianic line are hanging by a single thread. And so 2 Chronicles chapter 22 begins. 
Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Azahiah, his youngest son, king in his place, because the troops that had come with the Arabs to the camp had killed all the older sons. So Azahiah, son of Jehoram, became king of Judah. Azahiah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned for one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ataliah. So you know, you know what's coming here next, right? You can almost hear uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dun, 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 right? And so a few months after his coronation, Azahiah is killed in battle. Now, no problem. Azahiah had sons and nephews, and they were all over the place. But they were all young, and they were powerless. So the person closest to power was the dogwork king, Ataliah. Now, here's the problem. She's not Jewish. She's the daughter of Jezebel. She is not a worshiper of Jehovah, and she worships the foreign god Baal. This is when Satan launches his strategic initiative at this point. When Athaliah, Azahiah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. So here's the next point to understand. When Ahaziah died, Athaliah killed all the royal heirs. So now the king is dead, his descendants are dead, and it even seems as though the Davidic line is dead, and which dashes all the hopes for the Messiah, right? Well, hang on. This is the Good Friday, if you will, of the Old Testament. It seems as though Baal has triumphed, even possibly that Satan has won. But friends, this is the bad news. It's all dark. All hope was lost. For seven years, Judah lived under the rulership of a foreign queen who was worshiping a foreign god. If you will, she was COVID-19 of her day. So if you've been impacted by this season that we're in, you probably know a little bit how these people felt. I mean, if you're depressed or you're frustrated or you're irritated or you're angry, you know how these people felt at this time. Because you see, the person in charge of their state, the person in charge of their nation has driven a stake through the heart of all their hopes. Now, here's what I want you to see. It's in moments like this that God is really, really good in showing up. And so let's continue reading this story. When Athaliah, Uzziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, rescued Joash, son of Azaiah, from the king's sons who were being killed and put him and the one who nursed him in a bedroom. Now Jehoshabeth was the daughter of King Jehoram and the wife of the priest Jediah. Since she was Azaiah's sister, she hid Joash from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. He was hiding with them in God's temple for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Then in the seventh year, Joadiah summoned his courage and took the commanders of the hundreds into a covenant with him. They made a circuit throughout Judah. They gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the family heads of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. Then the whole assembly made a covenant with the king in God's temple. Jehoadiah said to them, Here is the king's son. Skipping down to verse 12. When Athaliah heard the noise from the troops, the guards and those praising the king, she sent to the troops in the Lord's temple. The commanders and the trumpeters were by the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets while the singers with musical instruments were leading the praise. Athaliah tore her clothes and screamed, Treason! Treason! And then the priest, Jedediah, sent out the commanders of hundreds, those in charge of the army, saying, Take her out! 
So they arrested her and she went by the entrance of the horse gate to the king's palace where they put her to death. Man, triumph, right? The forces of darkness seemed to be in control. It seemed as though Satan had won and the good was defeated and evil had overcome. But what seems and what is aren't always the same because of the God of the Bible is also the God of good news. He's the God of the rescue. He's the God of a living hope. He's the God of second chance. He's the God of the comeback. And see, with him, there is always a way out of darkness. So the dreams of the Messiah at one point were dead, and then they were resurrected. Sorrow may remain for the night, we've heard, but joy comes in the morning. And so what happens? Athaliah is annihilated. Athaliah has annihilated all the royal heirs, but here, seven years later, it was discovered that one heir survived. Now you talk about rejoicing. Let's continue on here. Then Jehoiadiah made a covenant between himself, the king, and the people that they would be the Lord's people. So all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed its altars and images and killed Matin, the priest of Baal, at the altars. And then Jehoiadiah put the oversight of the Lord's temple into the hands of the Levitical priests whom David had appointed over the Lord's temple to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and song ordained by David. He stationed gatekeepers at the gates of the Lord's temple so that nothing unclean could enter for any reason. Then he took with him the commanders of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the Lord's temple. They entered the king's palace through the upper gate and seated the king on the throne of the kingdom. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death by the sword. So what we have here is Ezra, our writer. He's walking us back through the history of Israel so that we can learn some lessons to apply right now in our time. And so here's what Ezra is letting us know. A couple thoughts. First, there is a war in heaven that is playing out here on earth. And I want to say that this war is more real than the, any of the wars that we've experienced. The Iraqi War, the Gulf War, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Which I want to say is maybe why all of us are feeling the way that we're feeling these days. What you're feeling isn't just about a virus or about injustice or about quarantine or about economics or about politics or being shut in and being restricted. No, it's something much deeper that's going on in our world, and we need to call it out. Now, Paul goes on to say after the verse we just read, For this reason, take up full, the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And what do we know about the armor of God? Well, we know that it's faith and it's hope and it's righteousness and the it's the truth of salvation and it's God's word and the Holy Spirit. And we need to stand firm in those ideas, my friends. We need to trust God and believe what he says and we need to do what he says. So Ezra is teaching us that God always has a plan. God has always has plans to build up. That's what we see here in First Chronicles. And those plans are to build up and not tear down. And that Satan, our enemy, also has plans. That Satan is, always has plans to tear down. That's Second Chronicles chapter 22. And those plans are always to tear down and not build up. And so what Ezra is teaching us is this final point, is that God always wins. That the Athaliahs of our world may rule for a while, but they will never rule forever. 
There may be weeping that may be for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And I want to tell you that morning is coming. That morning is coming. Can you say that? Can you put it in the chat? The morning is coming. That is our hope. Now, that's sort of the vertical lesson of our story. It explains the spiritual dimension of our condition and why it seems that things are so much worse than they actually are. But on the horizontal plane, Ezra is also teaching us a couple things. That success is determined by the company you keep. Now, this is an important lesson. I mean, Jehoshaphat endangered the generations which followed by building an alliance with a Baal worshiper. He didn't know he was doing it when he did it. It seemed innocent at time to him. And that may be why God spells out to us so clearly in the New Testament when he says, here in 2 Corinthians, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Baal? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So on a practical level, Ezra is telling us, be careful even who you marry and who you have a relationship with, because you don't just marry a body. You marry a mind, you marry the person's beliefs, you marry their value systems. You don't just marry a person, you marry into their family. When Jehoram and got Athaliah, he also got Jezebel and her Baal-worshipping priests and courtiers and all the evil that went with them. So Ezra is encouraging us to line up all our partnerships with believers. And then also he's encouraging us to always have a mentor. The story of the young King Joash is the young King Joash did well and walked with the Lord so long as he had the priest Jehadiah at his side. In fact, here's how the story ends. It says, Jehadiah died when he was old and full of days. He was 130 years old at his death. He was buried in the city of David with the kings because he had done what was good in Israel with respect to God and his temple. However, after Jehadiah died, The rulers of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the temple of the Lord. Jehoshaphat made an alliance, and as a result of that alliance, the lineage of David and the promise of the Messiah were almost wiped out. Satan is always working to defeat God's plans. And you know what? They never succeed. The story of Joash is a story of triumph from ashes. It's the story of revival, once again. It's also the story of two unsung heroes who were not kings, One was a rescuer named Jehoshabeth, the other a mentor whose name was Jehodiah. They happened to be married to each other. Everyone needs a rescuer at some time, and everyone needs a mentor at all times. This is the story of the war in heaven and of relationships on earth. And the moral of this story is this, that God always wins. So stay close to him, and you will too. In Jesus' name, amen.